preaching of God's Word then is in Psalm 27, particularly verses 13 and 14. Psalm 27, 13 and 14. Read, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. These two verses conclude a psalm of deep exercise of an exercised Christian. Notice it is a psalm of David. He was a man much like the one whom he would foreshadow, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew, of course, joy in the Lord, but he also knew deep turmoil of soul, of family, of society, of the church and state, of enemies of God's people, and even among God's people. He knew the conviction of sin. He knew that deep-seated grief over his own lamentable waywardness. He knew as well the attacks of adversaries and even of his own family rising up against him. He knew these things. And yet he is the one who begins the psalm, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yet as he begins with this great testimony of faith, you'll notice as he recounts these things, we find him actually in a season of difficulty. And so it is in the passage before, we read in verse 9, Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. And so we ought to learn, of course, that strong faith doesn't mean there aren't strong trials. In fact, those who bear strongly in faith before God will often face strong trials of that faith as David did. And you'll notice the text immediately, verses 13 and 14, it actually begins with a supplied expression, I had fainted. This is supplied in order to capture the sense. Often there are broken prayers, as they're called in the Psalms and elsewhere, where, as you know by experience, you have starts and stops. You begin a prayer and There's the unutterable portion that then leads you to something else. And so what is actually before us are these words, unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, which of course is an expression assuming his great trial. Unless I had seen that, what would have become of David? Unless he had faith to trust the goodness of God in this day, What would become of David? That's why supplied is that expression, I had fainted. The idea is his heart has been face to face with the depth of difficulty. And he looks at it unutterable. And he then says, in light of that which he sees, the trials and hardship, he acknowledges his great supply of hope unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he counsels himself and us by God's great spirit, wait on the Lord, be of good 
courage. He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. The sore trials that believers bear are in many ways innumerable. There are some that stand out as large mountain peaks, and yet the life of the believer is riddled with them. That if we were to understand all of the trials that would grip us as believers in one moment, what believer is there that could stand? What believer could breathe if we were to put them all in one mass? But brethren, the grace of God to his people far exceeds those pains and trials and difficulties that were we to believe God's goodness, which is so amply and clearly and regularly set before us in his word, who would stumble? If we had faith to trust what God reveals to us of himself, that the Lord is good, that the Lord will fulfill his promises then we would be able to withstand the very assaults of Satan himself, not because of any virtue in us, but because we are assured of the virtue, faithfulness, and goodness of God. This is what strengthens David. What a word it is that's given to us twice, wait. Who among us likes to embrace that word ever? Simple things, in big things, in difficult things, in happy things. Who among us likes to wait? If it's difficult, we say, I don't want to wait, just get it over. If it's something that's happy, we don't want to wait. We want to experience that good thing. How much more difficult when in the midst of trials, what we see and perceive seem to be a testimony contrary to the promise of God. And yet David was much acquainted with those very trials that you and I know by experience as well. And he gives us a doubled exhortation, wait on the Lord. Brethren, we wish to consider these words before us as each of us knows something of what it is to faint or be tempted to faint in godliness and trusting the Lord. Let us consider how it is that when we find ourselves on the brink or even in the experience of such things, that our faith may be strengthened and renewed again. So consider then three things. Firstly, faith challenged. Secondly, faith exercised. And thirdly, faith strengthened. Faith challenged, exercised, and strengthened. As to the first, faith challenged. Perhaps we've heard of those who have gone from strength to strength unwearied. We sing of that sometimes. And if you're anything like I am, you pause and you wonder, is that really the experience of God's people, that they go simply in a straight line up? There's much more, of course, in that expression. Bless God if we know something of that strengthening of His grace. But for many of us, we're well familiar with what it is to experience seasons of weakness, whether it is personally, no circumstance in our life particularly that comes, or if it is, because of circumstances, our faith is challenged. Well, we can consider what it is that brings these 
weaknesses to pass in the believer. There are many things beyond even the scope of this passage that may be helpful to consider, not least of which is remaining sin in the believer. We are grateful that no sin has dominion over us. It is removed from the throne of the believer's heart. And yet, in this life, brethren, we know it by experience and by God's word, every believer still has remnant of sin within himself. There's still the tainting of our understanding, of our will and affections, of our speech, of our actions, of the whole of our constitution. But God be praised that this, of course, is being further and further overcome. But it is remaining sin that causes us to have some stumbling at temptation. It's an amazing thought to consider that though Christ is still, since the Incarnation, ever shall be, fully human, never once did he stumble. Never once did Satan find anything in him. That when Satan came with the ferocity of one who would devour the great captain of our salvation, and brought to bear the great abilities that he has mastered over millennia, yet Satan found nothing in him. Though Christ were brought low after days and weeks of fasting, yet even then was Satan unable to find something in Christ. He was tempted in all points like as we, we read, yet without sin. That word yet is the big difference between you, me, and Christ. He was tempted in all points like we are. Here's the difference. Yet he was without sin. Brethren, when you and I are tempted, we have to confess that there's something in us that is still attracted to the temptation. And though by God's grace, and we bless God for it, It gives us the spirit that we should not be lost unto sin. And we often, by his grace, do overcome. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. We acknowledge that war that Paul saw in himself. The good that we would, we do not. And that which we would, we do not. There remains this warfare. And it is this which causes us, when faith is challenged, at times to stumble to buckle under the pressure. You can see it in Peter, of course. He ventures out of the boat at Christ's word. He doesn't just carelessly do so. He actually calls upon Christ, if it be you, then call me unto yourself that I would walk on water. And at Christ's word, he then walks upon the water. And yet, so soon as he takes his eyes from Christ and eyes the waves and the fact, perhaps the thought going through his mind, my feet are finding the water to be solid beneath them. And so as soon as he takes his eyes off of Christ, he begins to sink. And so soon it is for us as well. If there were no sin, your faith and my faith would ever fully and actually be locked upon Christ. There is a misbelieving of God's promises, though they are clear. And this misbelieving is because of sin that remains within us. Now, we note God's good purpose 
that even in remaining sin, He has a purpose to teach us humility and dependent, dependence upon Him. And yet it is so that it remains. Another reason for this is the prosperity of the wicked. We see it taking place. Psalm 73 indicates this. When Asaph perceives the prosperity of the wicked, and he looks at their relative ease, he looks at their comfort, he looks upon himself and he says, I've cleansed myself in vain. This is one of those avenues that comes crashing into our lives. We think ourselves solidified. We think ourselves secure. We're trusting God's promise. And then we hit, as it were, a trial. Our eyes jolt from the path of God's promise unto the prosperity of the wicked. And we begin to doubt and say, God, why is it thus that I, who am striving by your word to walk according to that word, that I have encountered yet another grief, another difficulty. And yet the wicked whose laughter is over wickedness know no such trials as challenges. But you'll notice that in particular, David in this passage focuses upon those who are false witnesses. Verse 12, Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. We ought not to underestimate how strong a temptation it is to give over when false witnesses arise. They speak with the tongue of Satan, who is a liar. And we ought not to underestimate Satan's skill, tact, and ability. Many of us know what it is to stumble at the false accusations, the misrepresentations, even by believers, how they seek to read into motives, motives that were never there. They misjudge words and misrepresent to others these things. And this among brethren, what a stumbling point that is. But here, there are enemies who are standing with false accusations. And these things, they cut to us. And we start to become off of our balanced position of faith in God's Word. And we're pushed back by these who bring accusations against us. And we struggle by virtue of their challenges. And we lose our orientation to God's Word and promises. (coughs) And by it, we become troubled. We know something of this by men. Brethren, ever remember this, that the chief enemy and false accuser of the brethren is Satan. Satan is our adversary. He is ever coming with false accusations. Satan comes and he knows how to speak in such a way to camouflage the truth and to misrepresent the truth and to bring all sorts of difficulty into our souls. He points out and exaggerates our sins and doubts, and he points out and exaggerates, as it were, our unbelief as well. He is a master of misrepresenting the truth. He is a liar. And brethren, those who join with him are liars that ought not to be 
listened to. Well, there are many other ways that our faith is challenged, however many there are. When faith is challenged, it can bring about difficult experiences, doubts, pains, exercises upon our souls that we never knew. We become opened, as it were, to a world of iniquity that still remains in us, and we become confounded by that discovery of sin. We don't understand that even God is using those things to open our eyes to see what remains in order that we would be drawn to Him. We become in this imbalanced position and in danger, as it were, of fainting. That's what David is expressing. Well, however faith is challenged, how is it then that we find faith to be exercised? Notice then, secondly, the exercise of faith. Unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This expression expresses David's exercise of faith. You can think of it this way, children. You have muscles, and were you to exercise those muscles, your leg muscles, you exercise perhaps by running. And so when you're just sitting down, your leg muscles aren't being activated, apart from minor little balancing that might take place. But if you were to exercise your leg muscles, you would perhaps do long distance or sprints and other things, and you're pushing them, as it were, to the brink of their ability. And this is what it means to exercise. Well, we can speak of that as well with reference to our mental abilities. When we exercise our minds, we're thinking about difficult things. It's why we say that you know, looking at television or uh, looking at our phones is often a mindless activity. We're just there scrolling through things. There's nothing really that's going on, but to have sustained thought upon a word being read or to work through translation of language or to think deeply on concepts, this is to exercise our mental faculties. It's not just to have a mind, it's to use our mind. Well, we can say the same of the grace of faith. There is, as theologians remind us, the habit of faith, And there is the exercise or the act of faith. That a believer always has faith, but then there are particular promises and circumstances that arise which then draws them to act consciously their faith, to exercise it. And that's what David here expresses. I believed. I had believed. The soul is here said to be embracing what is held forth. It doesn't just know that it's there. Well, particularly you'll notice the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It is that the soul is now coming and embracing that truth. It's coming and it's owning that truth. It's relying upon that truth. It's claiming that truth. You can think of it this way. Is perhaps you have a bank account. You look at your balance and you say, oh, I've got a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars or a few dollars, it doesn't matter, in your account. You know it's there, but when it is that you go and you withdraw the money, now you're acting upon that, you're using that, you're employing that. 
And we can look in some sense at the account of God's promises and know they're there. Oh yes, I know God's promised this, I know God's promised that. But then when it is that circumstances pinch us and push us and they come to us, then it is that our souls, as it were, draw from that account and say, this promise which I know is now being drawn unto my soul. I'm bringing it unto my soul. I'm embracing this truth. That's what David's saying. I have enemies. This is what I see. I have false witnesses against me. And my mind could go berserk over all of the assumptions of what's going to come to pass. Look how many enemies I have. Look what influence they have. Surely I'm ruined. You think of Abraham. You're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham looks at his wife and says, you've got to be kidding me. My wife is past the age of bearing children. And so here he is looking at this circumstance. And yet what he does is he then looks at God's promise and he draws from that. He believes. Abraham's called to sacrifice the son of promise. And so whereas it's sufficient in one sense to say, I know God will be faithful. He acts faith by believing that promise and takes his son up for the sacrifice. And he says, the lad and I will return. This boy and I will return. Isaac says, look, here's the wood, here's the fire, here's the altar, where's the lamb? What does Abraham say? The Lord himself will provide. He goes exercising faith. He's living out that faith. This is what David's expressing He looks at all of his enemies. His mind could run crazily down the path of now what's going to come. But instead of looking at these things, what does he do? He turns to the promise that has been given him and many which have been given us. That he would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And he says, howsoever many enemies there are, Howsoever strong they are, howsoever well-resourced they are, howsoever influential they are, yet I trust God's Word. Brethren, this can be applied to innumerable circumstances. In fact, we are grateful. Sometimes in our immaturity, we think to ourselves, oh, that God would have given us a comprehensive list of every circumstantial detail that we need to think through. Brethren, if that were the case, you would have a volume that is of innumerable pages because circumstances multiply in one's life alone to nearly innumerable matters. But instead what he's done is he's given us promises that accompany all manner of circumstances. For instance, here's one. I will be your God. Here's another. The Lord is my shepherd. That's a truth. These are truths that encompass all manner of circumstances. And what David here exercises is something that is available by God's grace to each of us. 
to take up God's promises and say, in spite of what I see with the seeing of my eyes, in spite of what I hear with the hearing of my ears, in spite of what I'm feeling in my body, this is what I know. God is true, and I choose to trust His Word. Notice the foundation of faith, as David expresses it, is the goodness of the Lord. It's the Lord's goodness. Some, particularly in America, have learned this simple prayer, however tried it may become, yet how profound if we were to think about it, God is good, God is great. It goes on about seeking the Lord's blessing upon our food. God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for our food. How simple a little rhyme of a prayer. And yet, brethren, if you and I believed those opening words, God is great, God is good, you and I have sufficient provision to overcome every single trial that is brought to you. Because the God who is great and the God who is good is your God. This is, of course, there throughout this psalm. In verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He's not just the light and the salvation. The believer is given words to say, Jehovah is my light. He's not only our light. He's not only our salvation. But the individual believer has the privilege of taking these words and saying, Jehovah is mine. There are things that are ours that we are counting ourselves privileged to own. Whether it's something that's been handed down for generations, whether it's some prized possession that we have purchased ourselves, or a trophy that reminds us of a season of our life, whatever it is, or if we go bigger, we think of our spouse. This is my wife. This is my husband or our children. This is my child. And we have great comfort and great privilege in knowing these things. Brethren, here is what transcends every other privilege. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And yet we go back to the enemies and the false accusers and preeminently our adversary, Satan, who ever seeks to challenge those very things. You can summarize his challenges, his false accusations, and his deceit in just a handful of things. God's not good. God's not yours. You get down to the brass tacks, that's what's being challenged in the majority of the temptations he levels against us. Faith rises above those lies, what they are, lies, and says, no, I know the God in whom I've believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. The Lord in whom I've believed is mine. He's my God. How do you know that? He's said it. He's told me in his word, I am the Lord your God. Oh, the great 
blessing of the biblical teaching on the sacrament that when baptized, we have none less than God Himself saying, I'm baptizing you into My name. You're now Mine. And the world in its false theology and Satan in his wicked deception and our own plague of doubt misses the privilege. God has come near to us and said, I am yours. And we have the audacity, the rebellious tendency still, to rise up and say, I don't know if God cares for me. I don't know if God really loves me. And we think we have this massive reason to raise that doubt, all of which is a lie, all of which is false. That if we had faith to see clearly God's goodness, we would see that the pain, the heartache, the relational trauma, the difficulties that we face in this world, the whole sum of it is easily overcome with this word. God is my God. If we stand persuaded of that, if we exercise faith in that, brethren, we have the solution to our challenge. And oh, time passes quickly. But think just how simply and clearly and regularly God is making this point known throughout the Bible. The Bible from the beginning to the end is harping upon this string. Yes, there's the melody and the symphonic beauty and the rich tapestry of the whole of God's revelation. But to God's people, there's one resounding note. I am yours, you are mine. This is repeated again and again and again in a variety of ways, yes. But the sum and substance of it comes again to us. God is my God. I am His. This is what strengthened David. And this we consider then how faith is strengthened. And so consider that faith is strengthened by God. David notes this particularly. He says, He, verse 14, shall strengthen thine heart. Let's be clear. There is no such thing as self-strengthening in spiritual things. We don't mean to deny that there are means to use, but we do mean to affirm what God most clearly makes known that any spiritual life and degree of life, any spiritual strength and maturity is God's gift, period. There's nothing that you merit as a Christian. There's nothing that you, as it were, purchase from God with your self-denial or your prayers or your Bible reading or your self-denying practice to come to the family time of worship or personal time of worship or public time of worship. None of that moves the scale at all to say, therefore, God must bless me because I've earned this. Anything that is given to us is freely given. It's so beautifully taught to us with reference to our daily need. Christ teaches us to pray, give me this day. Give us this day our daily bread.
We go and work. We plan, we strategize, we labor hard, we work diligently, and yet at the beginning, in the middle of it, and at the end, we come to God as those who are simply asking, give. And what is true of our physical bread, which ministers strength to our souls, is true of our spiritual bread as well. We come and we say, give. Freely give. Your faith, my strength, or my faith, is strengthened only by God's grace. But notice, God uses means. And so you'll see that faith is strengthened by God in the exercise of faith itself. So what does David say? Wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. He calls us to the posture of one looking to God. And he says it's in that posture, in that position, that God will, in due time, strengthen you. And if you step back and see this for a moment, what goes on when Satan is after us in a variety of ways is he's trying to chase us from this posture. He's trying to get in our thoughts. He's trying to get into our souls. It's not worth waiting. You've waited long enough. If God were true, he would have done it by now. If God loved you, he would have given this to you by now. If God, if God, if God, if God, if God, why is he not giving it to you now? David says, no. The place of finding strength is the posture of waiting on God. Wait on the Lord. So clearly does David understand this, that he doubles this. Wait on the Lord. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Think for a moment of your own struggles with faith as trials come. And as those trials seem to go on for long seasons, perhaps it's been weeks, perhaps it's been months, perhaps it's been years. And what happens as you wait? You say, okay, I've waited. David comes and he says, wait still. And you say, why would I wait still? Well, upon whom are we waiting? You see, there comes a point in this earth when we say, I've waited long enough or so and so, the time's passed, I'm just being played the fool because, you know, if I keep waiting upon this person, it's going to prove to be a fault. But we aren't waiting on a mere human. We're waiting on Jehovah. Ask this question for a moment. Has God ever said something that he then breaks? Is there ever a circumstance that comes to God that overwhelms him and keeps him from keeping his promise. You know, that happens to us. We, out of all sincerity, out of every good intention, may say, I'll be there at this time. And yet something unforeseen happens, a car accident, an illness, a different obstacle, and we're kept, not to our own fault, but we're kept from doing this. Sometimes we promise things that we ought not to have promised. 
we perhaps had good intentions, but we weren't wise in thinking through the implications of things we promised. And we get to a point of saying, what I've promised, though well-intended, is wrong to have promised. And so I have to take that back. Other times we promise things, and simply out of our sin, we fail to keep it. None of those match who God is. God never promises something to his people that he is unable to keep. God never promises something to his people that he is hindered from keeping. God is true. And so when we sit waiting upon God and we feel, as it were, the weight of the accusations of the evil one, we feel the mockery of the demonic host, and we sense the world joining in, we have no reason to be moved so much as by a centimeter in our posture, because the one we're waiting on is faithful. He will fulfill his word. David had a particular promise, which to some extent is given to us as well, but that he would see his kingdom established. Think for a moment how many different ways that was challenged. Again, it's easy for us after David's life to look back and say, well, yeah, look how it worked out. But in the midst of it, what did David have to live upon but the promise of God? And brethren, that's our position. As we look forward in our lives, what do we have to live upon but the promise of God and his goodness? Here is where faith is strengthened. Looking to God and waiting upon his promise. As we close, a number of applications that may assist us. Firstly, through David so many times, we ought to learn that the believer is often tried in sore and painful ways. David knew that. Such trials are known even by the best and most gracious of Christians. Satan loves, and our flesh is very ready to believe, that trials that come to us are peculiar to us, and the depth and agony that we experience, none other has known. It's false on two counts. Christ's trials and temptations far exceed whatever depth you and I experience. But also, even as we're told, there's no temptation that has come to us except what is, think of the language, common to man. We have trials in our bodies. There have been people who have been tried that way, and brethren, in ways that far exceed yours and mine. We have trials in our relationships of a family. Well, we could look at David, couldn't we, to see that even the godliest of men have known worse trials than we have known. We have trials in our finances. We have trials in our health. We have trials in our thoughts. We have trials in our souls. We have trials in the church. We have trials in the world. We have trials when we're young, when we're old. We have all sorts of trials. And yet, brethren, those trials are common. You can't point to a trial and say, this is unique. Satan loves to point out what he says is unique, but he is a liar always. 
even when he holds forth, as it were, a glimmer of the truth, he's perverting the truth so that the glimmer of truth is false. He misuses the truth. He abuses the truth. He's never telling the truth. We have to learn this. We ought to see David was tested. I'll be tested. Paul was tested. I'll be tested. Christ was tested. I'll be tested. So we learn that these come. We ought not to be surprised. Peter says this. You know, don't be surprised as if something strange has taken you. This is to be expected. It's often the first step to overcoming that initial shock. Secondly, we also see and ought to learn the way of overcoming these trials to our faith. And simply put, it's by considering God's goodness and God's promise of His goodness. If you are persuaded that God is good, you have the resource by His grace to see your faith nourished and strengthened in the worst, most perplexing, and most difficult of scenarios. If you are persuaded of God's goodness, whatever evil comes your way, you have no reason to be moved at all. This is what David begins with when he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? In your trials, if I asked you, Whom shall you fear? You're ready with an answer, Whom you shall fear. I should fear this person or these circumstances or these things. David says, when I'm persuaded that the Lord is mine, who is there that I should fear? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, notice not against my army, but though an army should encamp against me solitarily, What an outdone person. David says this, My heart shall not fear. He's not putting on the British stiff upper lip. He's not playing as if he's strong. He's saying, My heart won't quiver. Why? Because in this will I be confident. The Lord is my light and my salvation. We ought to beware Satan knows our weaknesses. There are things that will come to us at various stages of life that will startle us of how quickly we discover our weaknesses that we thought we had overcome, that we thought we had seen strengthened, and yet he comes to Peter in the guise of a servant girl. He comes to us in weak things, unsuspecting things, It's at a maiden's, a young maiden's question that Peter denies the Lord. Who would have said to Peter that he would have believed it? Peter, your first denial of Christ will be with a little girl asking you a question. If I said to you, you're going to deny Christ by a little girl coming up to you and saying, are you one of Christ's disciples? Who here would think 
that that's going to be the case. There's no chance that I'm going to quiver at that moment. But it was a little girl that discovered this latent weakness in Peter. It wasn't a man with a sword to his throat. It wasn't a man with a gun to his head. It was a little girl with a question. Are you one of his disciples? You're one of his disciples, aren't you? I don't know what you're talking about. No, I'm not one of his. Brethren, this is something we need to learn. Though we should be aware of the great enemies and the big difficulties, it's often the little things, the unsuspecting things that catch us. And it's those things which the Lord uses to point out areas of pride and arrogance that have said we're okay when actually we're weak. When those things come, we ought to bless God that He's discovered it for us. Satan comes, and he comes with a red-hot poker poking us in our weakness. And we feel it, and oh, the shame that engulfs us that we should struggle with such thoughts at such circumstances, and that we should be entertaining such doubts and such sins. And Satan all the while is seeking to undo us. But brethren, Satan is God's pawn in his master. 